0: Welcome back to Unleashed, guys. We are so glad you are here, and uh, we are the resistance. This is going to be a fun uh, few episodes we're going to be doing because we're going to be talking about something that that I affectionately call the the Big Five Man Killers. And it's going to be interesting because we're going to be taking these, the, the deadliest five animals, like on the entire continent of Africa, and we're going to be breaking them down and, and putting some unhealthy things that we all go through that kind of resemble each one of those things that will literally kill us if we don't learn how to be able to tame. Um, We've talked about it, you know, unhealthy thoughts, emotions, and actions. But before we get started, Eric, just got back from vacation here, I did, and uh, good to see you.
1: Yeah, good to see you. So
0: questions, anything come in?
1: Uh, You've mentioned the big five in the past. Uh, someone wrote in and wanted to know how did the elephant end all, uh, end up on the list of the big five? I don't think people think <laughs> of elephants as
0: uh, I think it's I think it's the first word, yeah, big, El- big, yeah. I mean, they don't have to do anything; they can just sit on you, right? I mean, they're, what's crazy about elephants is, you know, they're like ten feet tall right at the shoulder. You can be like driving through the the African bush. And one can be standing there, and if it's not moving, you almost can't pick it out. It's it's bizarre, just the way the color scheme. Even though they're this gray, it just kind of blends in. Huh. And man, I'll tell you what, elephants are are freaky. There was um, this is a little side note here. I can't remember which um which country in the African continent it was, but they had been uh, they had been killing um, off some of the old bulls. I mean, uh, the poachers, and the problem was when they kill off the old bulls and left the young bulls there was no old bull there to, to mentor right you know we we know the value here of of fathers mentoring their sons and what happens when when a boy doesn't have a father it's the same thing in the animal kingdom and they were finding these these rhinos um, with big holes in them and they're like what is up with these i mean rhinos you know what is it a 4000 pounds animal or something it's crazy it's big huge what's up with these rhinos and they just found them dead with holes. Well, then they found out, they got footage. These elephants that were raised without a, an adult male figure, there's something when an elephant goes into, um, like a deer goes into the, you know, the rut in the fall, it's called um, must with them. And when they're going, that their testosterone, and everything is changing. They got, they get a little bit aggressive, like a young teenager would. But because they didn't have anyone there to mentor them, they were taking out their anger on the rhinos and they were calling it um, rhino tipping. They would knock over these these rhinos and then just flip them over and over and their tusks were just goring them. It was, but, and so, yeah, big five. I mean, there's nothing that can compare to to the elephant. Wow. Yeah. Well, I guess we can go ahead and light this candle and get things going.
1: First, we need to give a shout out to our, furthest away distant listener we don't know who it is but we know where they're oh from. yeah
0: you told me about this yeah
1: so we've, we have people tuning in from all over the world um so i i just looked at the analytics map and the furthest listener we have is someone in denmark and whoever you are please write into the show podcast at unleash men and uh just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and why you like to tune in and uh
0: What's the name? You you yeah. told me what the name, I couldn't pronounce it. I,
1: yeah, so we don't want to butcher this. Uh, so this, whoever this guy is, is out on a body of water. Um, and I'm going to just play. Yeah. You ready for this? Yeah.
0: Roskilde Fjord.
1: Common spelling on that. Uh, <laughs> so I also have it translated more into like the English, what we would, you know, here we go. Roskilde Fjord. Okay,
0: that's a little easier.
1: A little easier, but. You know, yeah, uh, whoever you are, reach out to us. Thank you for all of our listeners all around the world Canada, we have uh, uh Germany, Brussels, uh, you know, you name it. But this guy in Denmark, yeah, that's yeah, he's solid. It, and I'm hoping he's not wearing if
0: he's out on the lake, hopefully, he doesn't have wooden shoes. He's got probably fishing boots or something. Or, fishing boots, yeah, be cool if it was like a submarine. You know, someone's got the antenna up, and they're listening out there. So if it is, be, hey. Hi, guys. Yeah. Hello. Well, this is going to be a fun episode. Um, You know, lack of purpose is what we're going to be talking about. That's the number one man killer. And I'll explain how uh, we came to name these one through five. um, And I'll I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But each one of these man killers, as we go through this, uh, I've given basically uh, like there was like 12 things that I gave a group of about 400 men. And I said, "Here's the twelve things that men struggle with." But I want you, in order of importance to you, what are the the big five? You know, your top five that you struggle with, and I'll I'll explain that in just a little bit. But you know, I think all of us, it, you know, one of the coolest things, Eric, I was when I was on vacation, my daughter got a hold of me. My we were my family, my wife and uh, stepdaughter. We were all sitting around the pool, and my daughter calls me, and she says, "Dad," she goes. There was a girl that I was a marching band with. She was like 24 years old now. And somehow she heard this podcast. And I played that recording for you when I got in here today. I said, this is interesting. And she was like giddy. I mean, she was loving it. Um, and her name was Sinead. So I want to give a shout out. Thank you so much for those kind words that you said. And she was like, man, this, this is for everybody. Why is it mostly marketed for men? And again, that's mostly who my, my, uh, my audience is. But it absolutely applies to all of us, men and women alike. So anyhow, thank you uh, so much from that. And so in finding our purpose, we always have to come back to our identity. Like we started in week one and we talk about every single week. Identity, identity, identity. Because you will not be able to find your purpose unless you understand your identity really is Christ in you. Because he's the one steering the ship. He's the one that's made you um, put your feet on a path and he's going to be the one to equip you and give you what you need. And it's always about him. I was at Rick Warren. What was the book? Uh, Purpose Driven Life. I think the book starts off with something like, um, it's not about you. I think that was kind of how it started, started off. And man, it's so true. We we all have these things. We we think that the world should be telling us, you know, what we should be doing. And we have you've seen these. I'm sure in some of these self help books, you you go to someone and say, "Hey, tell me what am I really good at, better than the next ten thousand people." And we begin to look for those things. I think there's some truth in that. You know, we're, what are we gifted at? What are we really good at? Um, but man, let's go back and and look at like uh, uh, Moses. You no, know, he wasn't a gifted speaker, right? But what did God do through him was powerful. And I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to one of the podcasts and I said something about God doesn't like to just work through the improbable. He likes to work through the impossible because then he gets all all the glory for it. So as you're searching, you know, the next couple of weeks, as we talk about uh, lack of purpose, and we're actually going to talk about this for the next two weeks, be thinking, you know, about, about what maybe God is going to be saying to you through these, those breadcrumbs that you're going to be able to go back and start to trace, to see his hand in, in everything that's been going on as you begin to search and find that thing that really does make you, you come alive. So with, with men, you know, our biggest question, we talked about this a few weeks ago, was, you know, my big question is, you know, do I have what it takes? And for a woman, you know, it's, it's very, very similar, you know, am I enough? But for all of us, that question comes back, you know, who am I really? And we've said, you know, Christ in me is who we really are as a believer. But we all go through that searching process, trying to discover who we are. And all those things, as we go through each decade of life, you know, we're being formed and shaped like a fjord, like we talked about um, you know, in one of the, the podcasts where we were shipwrecked and I was going back to that fjord. You know, they've been, they've been you know carved out over, you know, thousands and thousands of years and god is carving us he is he is shaping us um to be exactly who he wants us to be for his glory for his purpose and the the, one of the main things i love is until um i take my last breath on this earth i still have purpose so no matter how old you are um you've got purpose if you're still breathing and i'm glad you're here if you're listening to this but when i was eric did you ever go to uh like youth conventions when you were young at all? I did not. You did not. You know, a lot of people came to, to Christ maybe later in life, too, and never had a chance to do that. I, I think I said one time I was born in a pew, I think. I mean, we were in church all the time. And there was a youth convention. It was the, the Church of God out of Anderson, Indiana. They had their big national youth convention. It seemed like it was maybe every two years. I think it was 1974. It was in Denver, Colorado. And I'm trying to figure out who I am. I'm 13 years old. I'm on the bus. I'm going out there wondering, you know, who am I going to be? What what does God have in store for me as I'm going to this youth convention? But girls were now on the radar. You know, I'm 13 years of age, and I'd never kissed a girl. I'd never held a girl's hand. I didn't even want to look at her. I was scared to death. So I'm in the back of this bus. You know, the cool kids are riding in the back, and some of them were letting me hang out in the back of this bus, tour bus. And so I'm going, this is, this is pretty cool. I'm trying to, you know. Fit in. And maybe about halfway there, it was starting to get dark out. Well, we all know teenagers, when when the lights go down, can start to like, you know, pull pranks and do different things. Well, they decided to play this little game. And they saw, I had a little, remember transistor radios? I had a little black and white transistor radio. And they said, Can we borrow that? And I'm thinking, Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was wanting to fit in with them. And so I borrowed this little transistor radio, or they do. And They said, okay, here's the rules of the game. They put it on the floor, and there's two seats on each side in the back of the bus. They put it on the floor, and they said, we're going to spin the radio. And they made sure that whoever was sitting in the back, this is why they wanted me to get in the back. You had to be sitting beside a girl. But they didn't tell you what they were doing. And when they it was basically they're playing spin the radio. This is our youth convention game on the way there. The the youth workers know they're all up in the front. Right. I was scared to death, but I'm thinking, oh, well, I, I didn't understand. I was figuring it was going to be somebody else doing the kiss. Well, they spin the thing, and the first person that appoints to the row is me sitting in the row with this girl. I'd never kissed a girl in my life. I barely even knew who she was, and if I remember right, she had a little bit of hair on her upper lip. Oh. And I was like, okay, this is really uncomfortable for me right now. Hello, Tom Selleck. <laughs> <laughs> It it doesn't get any better, you know, because you're you're like, you you don't want to know it's your first rodeo. Right. So you're trying to be cool. And she turns around and I I just close my eyes and I can remember her kissing me. And all of a sudden I was like, what is that? Yeah, you can figure out what she did next with that thing that comes out of her mouth, kind of like a clam, you know, that little, they call it, you know, the foot of a clam comes out. And I about choked and I said, what was that? And I I can remember saying something like, man, that tasted like McDonald's hamburgers. Uh. Or, that was my first experience. I'm trying to, who am I really is the question. And I just failed. You know, the, the it's my first rodeo and it was all, you know, exposed now. Yeah. And I was, it, it was humiliated. So that was in the very beginning, trying to discover in my manhood, you know, where God is, is leading me to the direction. Uh, yeah, that was not a fun experience for the first one. So then, you know, we get out of the 70s um, into the 80s, you know, trying to find my purpose. It's a new decade now. Um, you know, in, in the late 60s and 70s, you know, God had me in music. I was taking piano lessons and all these things. And then in the 80s, I go to college trying to look for my purpose. And I found out that I could do music really well. And I began to do that. And I've talked about that before and the music tours and all that. And then in the summertime, you know, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so it was like I loved hunting and fishing. I mean, that was my thing, and you can gather that from all the stuff that I talk about. And that ends up becoming a part of what my purpose is, the way God uses what I do. But I was going to Alaska in my summers up there, and it was, I think it was the summer of 85. I was working on a salmon boat, and this is pretty crazy so I'm trying to earn my man card. You know, as a lot of us guys, you know, we we take those early jobs, we're trying to, you know, prove ourselves and and you know, earn that man card to prove we have what it takes. And we're in that we're in a little place, Bristol Bay is huge. We're in a little village called King Salmon, which is for that area it's a little bigger, but it's it's a small little village, fishing village. And so when we when we get there, we fly in, my buddy and I fly in on a commercial jetliner into I think it was Iliamna. And then his dad picks us up in his I think it was his bush plane or whatever, and he flies us the rest of the way up, and so we're sitting in what's called dry dock. you're getting your boat ready you know to go out in the open ocean. I think there's going to be like six hundred and eighty boats or something out there when they open up the the uh salmon season and as we're as we're getting everything ready, you know i'm I'm watching all these guys working and i'm i'm in I'm in awe you know I, I want to be like so many of these guys, these rough, tough guys and so we get on the boat and we're out maybe this two days and you know it's really cool we're, we're out there we have jets instead of a prop on the back of the boat so we can get up on the water you know pretty pretty quick move pretty fast and i'm seeing you know beluga whales surfacing beside us and dolls porpoises and so we get out we, we get our nets in the water and we're just hammering hammering these salmon so we have to unload you know can only you have your brailers brailers, or you have down in the hull of the boat you take the lids off and as you're picking the salmon out you're taking these salmon and you're putting down inside these brailers, And when it's time to unload, you pull up to a bigger boat, which in this case is called a scow. And it's, you know, quite a bit larger than we are, probably, I don't know, eight times larger than we are. And so they, they put this hoist over the side, and like a crane arm swings around and they come down, they lower it and pull these brailers up and they weigh them. So I'm down on the boat. We, we pull up beside the scow. We tie up. And the captain, who's one of the roughest tough guys I've ever met in my life. I mean, you know, he's a bush pilot as well and a, and a hunting guide. And if you've ever seen the movie Never Cry Wolf, Brian Dennehy plays the role of kind of one of these crazy bush pilots kind of a thing. And that's the way he was. But he was an amazing pilot. So he goes up on, he climbs this rope ladder, he gets up on the side of the scow where they're going to weigh it. I'm down on the, on, the, on the deck of the boat with his son. And we begin to hear shouting going on. And so I see my buddy run up the side of this this ladder and he looks over and he literally jumps all the way back down, gets down inside the boat, pulls out an AR-15. And I'm like, what is going on? And I see him getting ready to go back up. And then I see his dad coming down over the ladder and they had told us to leave. And I didn't know what was going on. I found out that this, um, this one deckhand Was trying to cheat us out of money because they weren't zeroing the scales. You know, they were leaving some on, so we would be losing some money. He said, "Well, we'll go find somewhere else." Well, about maybe four or five days later, we have to unload again. That's the only scow we could find, and I knew fireworks were going to happen. And so we pull up. He goes up on the deck, and the second that this deckhand—and I'm going to tell you something—when this deckhand, when when this deckhand sees him come up and recognizes who he is. This deckhand pulls a knife, and the captain knocks this deckhand right, and I'm going to say this, on her butt. And when I say that, I say it very carefully. And I wrote in my book, The Roar Within, I was describing this. And this is kind of funny because this is the roughest, toughest woman I've ever seen in my life. And I I said this, I guess I should clarify something. The devious deckhand wasn't a man. She was the roughest, smelliest woman I'd ever seen. I could only guess that when her ship made it to port, her shampoo was of choice was Rogaine, and her wash rag was 40 grit sandpaper. She could outdrink a camel and was hairier than a musk ox, meaner than a Cape buffalo, and more foul-mouthed than a turkey vulture. The reason my buddy had gone for the AR-15 was he had seen his dad shove the cheating deckhand onto the, onto the deck after she'd attempted to pull a knife. So this is like, this is like the intro of, I'm trying to get my man card. And you'd think, you know, the baptism by fire might be a little slower than that. But this is the way everything started. And, you know, in those moments, you're like, do I, do I really want to be, be doing this stuff? I mean, is this what I want to do with my future? Because, like, like I said, you're trying to figure out your, your purpose. So the summer prior to this, I had gone to Alaska. And this is kind of how I got introduced to my buddy's dad, who was the, uh, the uh, bush pilot and the uh, guide. He said, why don't you come on up? And he goes, Dad will fly us up into the Iliumna mountain range. And we'll go up and we'll do some uh, you know, uh, hunting for caribou and for black bear. And he said, this will be a great adventure. So we, we, we get on the bush plane and we're flying. And, and again, it's like an, uh, you're going through all these mountain passes. And what can happen when you get socked in, you're flying VFR, which is visual flight restrictions. When the weather begins to change... Because you you have no you know you're just, like I said you what you can see is where you fly. It's it's really sketchy because when things begin to go down over that windshield, it's like a white woolen blanket being pulled over that, and you can't see anything. So you really have to know the weather as much as you can in advance, know the area really really well, and so he he flies us all the way up. Now, he's landing in an area where there's three grassy knobs. Each knob is probably about a mile across. And the caribou, the Mulchatna herd, is what we were looking for. They're migrating through this area. So we're, we're looking for that herd. And we fly in. He he goes to, I think it was the middle of these three uh, uh, grassy uh, knobs, whatever you want to call them. And as he takes off, I can remember standing there realizing we're hundreds of miles from the nearest town. And if anything happens to his plane, when he's flying back, no one's going to know where we are. It's, it's sketchy. It really is. But I could feel the adventure. This is one of those tests, you know, as I'm walking toward my purpose, you know, who am I really? I'm trying to, to figure this all out. Well, long story short, it was kind of like the, the shipwreck we had a few uh, weeks ago. We talked about where we were stuck for like five or six days. Well, he was supposed to be coming back after like two days. He was going to, to guide another hunt. Well, we get sucked in, and the weather changes. It gets cold, and it is raining. And Here's the thing about Alaska. It's either about to rain, it's raining, or just finished raining. So you better be okay with rain. You know, you've got all your rain gear, everything you're going to be doing with you. Well, we get stuck there long enough. I mean, you know, days and days and days now that we're running out of water. We had to be able to, you know, to siphon water off from the rain and get it into, you know, Maxwell House Cup, I think we had, and different things. And then we ended up having to shoot a small caribou to have camp meat. So as you can imagine, you've got, like we talked about in the episode, when adventure begins, when your plans go bad, when you've got bloody meat and you've got bears around, it is not a good combination. They'll find your address real quick. So I go out in the middle of the night one night. We had all this bloody meat, and I go out to use the bathroom, and I step maybe, I don't know, 15 yards away from the tent, and I hear this sound. It's like... And I turn around and I'm going, what in the world? So I run back to the tent and I jump in and I said, Ralph, I said, did you hear that? He said, did it sound kind of like this? (laughs) I said, you're an idiot. He was messing with me, right? So I think it was two nights later. Now we've had the meat and all this stuff. I step away to go to the bathroom again and I hear something really similar. It didn't help that I was reading a book by Larry Canuik called Alaskan Bear Tales at the time about people who've been attacked by bears. Wrong kind of reading. And I hear that sound again, and I turn toward the direction of the sound and I say, very funny, Ralph. And from the other direction, I hear, what? Bear found our camp. He's in there knocking stuff over. But it was the next day his dad flew in and he said, listen, he said, "Uh, sorry guys, we couldn't get out of here. Um, Really bad weather. But he said, we need to to go back, we need to get out of here because there's a big change of of weather going to be coming in. So." he gets me first and there's not enough runway. There's not a runway. There's just not enough area to take the bush plane off from where he's going to be with the weight we're going to have now with the caribou and stuff. He says, okay, look across the Valley over there. He said, you see that mountain range? I said, yeah. He said, that's about 20 minutes flight time. He said, I'm going to take you and a bunch of this gear and get the meat. And I'm going to take you over to there and I'm going to drop you off. to a little bigger area. I'll come back and get my son. Then we'll come back and get you. And then we'll fly out of here. So, we take off and he flies that 20 minutes. And when we get to where we're going to land, I look down and there's a wounded, huge, what's called a double shovel caribou. You know, the guy with the way the antlers are made. It's what we actually had been looking for the whole week that we, we didn't have a chance to harvest. And right behind it is this massive grizzly. And it's on the heels of this thing, following it. And he turns to me as he's flying the plane and he goes, Hey, did you bring your rifle? silence. I had left it back at camp. And he's like, where are you from? He reaches under his seat. He's got that AR-15 and it was before they had the, you know, all the regulations on him. And he said, listen, here's a couple extra magazines. If he gets too close, just fire off a shot or two, he'll leave you alone. So he tells me, wants me to pace off this runway, like how many steps it would needed to be. So he takes off. So here I am pacing this, this runway off, and that grizzly's following that caribou, maybe 200 yards away in a circle as it's disappearing. A little unnerving, but I thought, I'm, I'm going to be okay here. So I'm pacing this runway, and I get to the edge of where this cliff drops off, the direction we're going to be flying toward, and I look maybe 40 yards down the hill, and there's a small plane smashed all over the rocks. I'm like, holy cow. So I make my way down, climb the rocks and get down there. And the electronics were all gone. I don't know whether the people ever lived or not, but everything was gone. Now I, I'm feeling this fear, this sense of fear and worry. You know, what if, what if they don't make it back somehow? I'm done. You know, no one knows where I'm at. So eventually he does. He comes back, picks us up. We take off. We're flying back. We're going through the mountain passes. We're probably flying at about 1,500 feet. And the weather begins to change and we're getting socked in this heavy cloud cover is, is coming down. We're at 1,500 feet. We're at 1,200 feet. We're at 1,000 feet. Now, we're flying now in, in between these, these mountains, these mountain passes, and they curve, and we're following these. And like I've said before, the bush pilots, every one of them up there will tell you, you have to really pay attention because all the clouds have rocks in them, and this is what they're talking about. So we're down to 750, we're down to 500 feet. And that's not very high. When you think about a tree out in your yard, maybe being hundred feet like a big oak or something, you're not that far off the ground. And you, you can't see it at the, at the turn in the valleys coming. So he says, boys, I need you to look down and I need you to look for a place to ditch the plane in case we have to. And I'm like, I didn't sign up for this. This is this is pretty scary. And as we are getting Closer and closer to the ground, we're at about 300 feet. He'd put out like a mayday, and we get a response. And it was like a little oil refinery or something. they say, hey, listen, we know exactly where you are. You can land the plane here, but you can't taxi up. But here's what we want you to do. You're going to see the edge of the pines and the cottonwoods coming up. As soon as those trees stop, put the stick straight down because that's where the end of our runway is, so get ready. Well, this wasn't the bush pilot's first rodeo. He'd been in these situations. A good pilot can wreck a plane. He's wrecked several of them. But this wasn't one of those times. He followed it, he, the directions exactly to that voice that was speaking to him. And he walked him all the way to the runway. And I always like to call it like your, your GPS, you know, like when you're using something so you know like your global positioning system. But I like calling, you know, what we're going to be talking about is, is like um, God's positioning system. He is going to be laying out those breadcrumbs for us to see where he wants us to go, when he wants us to go. And our job isn't to to argue with him or try to listen to the other voices on the outside telling us what we should be doing. But it's a matter of knowing his voice. And when he calls us to move forward, that's exactly what we do. We're obedient in those moments. Well, I told you before about um, my buddy Wade, you know, I met him in Alaska. And uh, I think it was about that time we were actually sighting rifles in um, on that same hunt, he was going to be going on a moose hunt coming up. So we were, we were sitting there together. But that time in my life really was was formative because it, it helped me move forward into some of those challenges that were scary. But I got to see God work amazing things out in learning how to trust him. You know, I think we all want to please God, and, we, and it's a great thing. But trusting him you can't please God unless you trust him. So as we now start moving into our purpose, it's really important to know that we have to build a trust with our Heavenly Father. And so right now, just for a second, you know, as we, we walk into this, I want you to be thinking back about your life and those things that God has brought you through up until this point. And I know in some of those moments you were scared to death. You know, what's going to happen if I can't pay my bills? All, whatever the questions that would come up are but you saw God be faithful. Whether you were able to pay those bills or not, maybe someone else showed up and helped you. Maybe you learned a lesson through it. We talked about challenges or gifts, but that's how God works, and he has this amazing purpose uh, for us. So I was telling you about Wade, and this is now where I want to turn the corner a little bit and talk about why I do what I do. You know, Why am I passionate about being on here and reaching you guys with this and seeing you guys equipped because I know what God did in my life. I know what he did through the gift of grace when I didn't deserve it. And I saw him put my feet on the ground and give me a message when I go and speak to to thousands of men, 20,000, probably guys, every single year when I have a chance to speak, that he had a plan. And he goes back and he looks at my past and he says, why would my purpose change for you? I've already known about your sin. I already died for that sin. And you're going to learn from it. So my buddy Wade, we were going to be going over, starting this new thing where I was going to be speaking for game dinners. God had now moved me from you know working in the church and doing music into reaching men through the outdoors. So we go over to uh, Africa. Now, part of that trip was designed to um, film rhinos while we were over there. Now, rhinos, again, we're going to be talking about um, a lack of purpose. And the number one man killer that I give, I give the lack of purpose to the rhino. And I told you I was going to go back and explain how I kind of gave these, these animals, each one of these, these struggles that we face, a name for the big five. So we call these the big five man killers. So I have a, a private Facebook group for men only, and it's called Unleashed Men. And it was maybe three years ago, I said, all right, guys, there's about 400 guys in there. I said, I want you to go through, here's a dozen things you might struggle with, you know, lust, shame, anger, whatever. I want you to give me your big five the top five things that you struggle with. And when the list came back, I I figured it was going to be like, you know, lack of respect would be number one, you know, or maybe lust, something like that. What I didn't see coming, and here's here's the big five in order of how they came out. Number one was lack of purpose. I didn't see that coming at all, and it wasn't even close. It was hands down the number one thing that men struggle with. And so the rhino, I gave this because rhinos are pretty amazing because they're really lethargic. I mean, they don't do much. They kind of, maybe once or twice a day, they move around. And here's how you find rhinos. When we were filming them, it was kind of funny. Um, our, our guide who was taking us back to find the rhinos, he says, well, here's how we find them. He says, you look for their dung piles because their dung piles are literally the size of a Volkswagen. They're huge because they keep going in the same spot. So that's what we were looking for. And as we're walking back into the bush, there was about maybe five of us in this group. And he said, the two of us with guns will be in the front because lions and leopards almost always attack from the front. Well, I'm the last guy in line, right? And I'm thinking almost always attack from the front. So as we're going back in there, my friend started telling me about a friend of his, uh, Dr. Alex Lewis, who was a, a, a big game veterinarian over there. And what they do with these rhinos is when they need to be given inoculations, they they actually dart them I mean, with a dart gun. And there's this stuff called, um, I think it's an it M50, M5050 or M99. One of them is what they tranquilize it with, and the other one is what reverses the effect. But he came up on a rhino, and he was going to dart it, and he saw that. The rhino had its calf with it. Now, rhinos can only see about 25 feet. They, they don't see well at all. Um, they've got a great sense of smell, great listening, and they can, they can hear well, but they can't see well. So he steps out from behind this, this bush thinking he can make the shot, but the rhino sees him and he knows it sees him. But he, he makes a mistake. He goes ahead, darts the rhino in the rump, and the rhino starts doing this little dance from the front feet to back feet, front feet, back feet. And I said, what's that? He says, that's called the rhino romp. I said, what's the rhino romp? He said, that's the dance they do right before they kill you. I said, oh, this is the real deal. Well, he made the mistake when he saw it doing it. He knew what that meant, and he ran. And he had told us, here's what he told us when we went back in to look for rhinos. He says, here is your orientation. If I tell you, do not run and you run, you will die. If I tell you to get into a tree, do it as quickly as you can, or you will die. End of orientation. I'm like, that's it? So he made the mistake, and he says, this is why I told you, don't run. He ran. Now, if you've ever looked at a rhino, they have two horns on the front. Now, these aren't bone, right? They're they're, they're hard like that. I think they're cartilage. But this, the front one is the long one, and it's pointed, and it's huge. And then the, the, the back one that's up a little higher on the nose, it's more stubby, but it's still a pointed, but it's more of a blunt. Well, he runs, and this rhino takes off after him. The rhino comes up from behind him and lifts its head up between his legs, and the first horn goes right through his thigh. I mean, this is, you can't even imagine. And he says, in that moment, I'm realizing, if I don't come up with a plan, I'm dead. And so he's, saying, he's thinking, i got to somehow get off of this horn, and i got to roll off, and then just don't move. Well, before he could do that, the rhino lowers its head, and tosses him back onto the second horn, breaking his back. Now, if this isn't enough, he tosses him off into what's called an acacia tree. Have you ever seen like a honey locust tree? Here in Indiana, they're, they're nasty. It's like these massive thorns. Well, it literally, you know, velcros him or whatever you want to call it, skewers him right in. These are hypodermic sharp. sharp. He's stuck in there. Well, they're able to, you know, life flight him out and save his life. But he said, you know, if I tell you, do not run and you run, you will die. Well, what does that have to do with what we're talking about here? Well, here's the thing. Rhinos, like I said, are really lethargic. They take a mud bath and they eat, and that's about it. That's all they do. The other thing they can do is they can pee in any direction, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that in there, maybe for little boys that are listening to this. Um, but it's like, you know, that's what they, they do. They, they, they take a mud bath and they eat. So you think they're not very dangerous, but when danger pops up, they can be deadly. And here's what ends up happening. When men lack purpose, they can become bored, lethargic. And what ends up happening when they don't have purpose, they're trying to find something to make themselves feel better. It could be drinking, it can be drugs, it can be having affairs, you know, it could be porn, whatever those things are. So, lack of purpose is a man killer, no question about it. So, you've always got to make sure that whether you're in between jobs or whatever is happening, that you somehow stay focused on that purpose that's in front of you. So let's t- talk about that for just a second. Though when we, when we lose that purpose, when something happens in our life, it could be an illness, uh, maybe you got fired from a job, whatever it looks like. But I had been writing books. I, I uh, The former president of Promise Keepers, R.T. Phillips, um, encouraged me to write my first book, Into the Wilds. And he says, man, you've got so much stuff here guys need to hear. So I wrote that. And then I got another book deal to write one called The Roar Within with Baker Books. And it was really promising. It was exciting to have that second book deal. But here's what the enemy will do. When you are being dangerous for good and you're making an impact, the enemy will go after you. And guys, that's one way you know that you're on the right track. Well, I had the book was done. They had accepted the transcript for the entire book. And then COVID hit and they called me on the phone and they said, hey, we're going to have to put this book on hold. I think it was March 14th of 2020. We're going to have to put this on hold probably for the next year, year and a half. And I'm telling you, that was like having the rug pulled out from underneath me because that's what I did. You know, I have these stories I write and then I go speak. Well, then the next thing that happened is on March 14th of that year, my phone's ringing off the hook. I mean, all these events that I had scheduled for like the next 18 months are gone. Because of social distancing, so the enemy, what he wants to do, guys, is he wants to he wants to steal your purpose, because if he can if he can steal that and the passion um, that you have behind that, because see, you were created to 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 add value to other people through your story, through your experiences, but what he will do is he will pull that rug out from underneath you, and the next thing you know, you find yourself sitting around going, "What am I going to do with my life?" I remember my wife saying. Um, you know, how much longer can we wait before you go out and find another job? Well, I'll save that for another episode because there's an amazing story of what God did through all this. But I'll tell you this much. We didn't know what to do. And I'll bet a lot of you out there didn't either when that hit. And so my wife, because a woman's, you know, one of their main needs is security. And my security and my income came through speaking. And I remember her saying to me, she goes, honey, you're going to have to go, I don't whether you're going to be pumping gas, stocking shelves somewhere, whatever, you got to do something. Well, you know, after being in the music business and, and being out there in front of so many people, you don't realize that you're buying into that live. You're getting your worth and value from what you do. And all of a sudden, to do something that you're not familiar with that doesn't look glamorous, I felt less than. Um, I know I told you we, we keep it honest here, and I did. Um, and I found myself realizing, you know, I thought I was better than some of those things. But we didn't know what to do, and I, I kept feeling God was saying, yeah, you're going to have to find something else, which I did for the next year. But he said, I'm not, I'm not telling you that you're going to be stopping. I'm going to show up, and here's the amazing thing. I was making less money at what I was doing than all the speaking events, but somehow at the end of the year, I made more money than I would have been had I been speaking. Only God. So here's the, the cool thing. I went to my wife and I said, let's go meet with our pastor and see if maybe from telling him what's going on, he can, he can give us some encouragement and maybe a word uh, from God. At the end of the conversation, here's what he said. He said, Brent, Stacy, I'm hearing the Holy Spirit saying one thing. He's saying, stay the course. Well, my wife was a little bit ticked because she was like, no, I want you to go to Nestle or someplace and work, right? And she's like, let's talk to somebody else. I'm like sure. Well, let's do that. I mean, I'm I'm the kind of guy that God always speaks to me like in threes. I don't know why He does that to affirm things, to follow the breadcrumbs, but He does it in threes with me. So we went to uh, another friend of mine, one of my my brothers from down in Indianapolis. We'll have on the show another time. And we got together with him, and I said, "What is God telling you about this?" He says, "I'll get back to you," and he did. And he said, "God's given me three words: stay the course." And my wife looks at me, shaking her head. She goes, why does God speak to you like this? And she goes, I don't know if I agree with this. And I said, well, I'm just following the breadcrumbs. So we go to church. Like two days later, we pull in the driveway. We have these neighbors that we hadn't hardly ever spoken to that are elderly. And we pull in, and he's getting out of the car. One of the first times he's ever spoken to us, ever. He waves to us, and he yells, stay the course. My wife is sitting there just, she doesn't know what to do, what to think. Now, I'll tell you more about her story later, but she didn't grow up in the church. She didn't grow up knowing God. As a matter of fact, she never knew who her father was, and she was abandoned at the age of eight. Really tough story. But she began to see God speaking through this, which later would become one of the ways that she would begin to learn how to trust God. But that whole thing with with stay the course became the motto of following the purpose that God had in my life. And what I want to say to you right now, God has an amazing purpose for you. Guys ask me all the time, you know, how do I know what my purpose is? Um, you know, it takes time. It, it does. But one of the things you can be doing right now is ask yourself, what's that that one thing right now that if you weren't doing it, that you'd find yourself curled up under an underpass somewhere? Because it's that thing that burns. It's that passion that you have. It's that thing that you can't not do. And I'm not telling you to go quit your day job, you know, that kind of a thing right now. God's going to open the door for you. But I, I want you guys to be thinking about this. So let me just kind of, um, I want to wrap up with reading something out of my, my book, uh, um, The Roar Within. And it goes back to a movie. I think a lot of you guys um, had seen, if you remember, uh, was it First Blood? Rambo, right? Uh, Sylvester Stallone. And was it like 1981 when that came out or somewhere around that time? And if you can remember, Rambo was the best of the best, right? He was, you know, the best warrior, the best. He could survive on anything. He he would, what was they said? He could eat things that would make a billy goat puke. I think that was the the word in the movie. But let me just kind of end. I want you to, to take and just listen to these words. When a man lacks purpose and direction... He will not feel valued. This plays havoc on his psyche, causing him to wonder why he's here. In the movie First Blood, a decorated Vietnam War hero, James Rambo, struggles to find his purpose after the war. He becomes an antisocial drifter, unable to cope with the loss of life, friends, and purpose he once knew. In one of the opening scenes, he's mistreated and talked down to by a local sheriff, who I think was Brian Dennehy that played that role, Um, the same one that played the, the bush pilot in that movie we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And he tells him that this community doesn't want drifters like Rambo, you know, in their town. He insults Rambo by mocking the way he looks while having the American flag, flag on his jacket. You know, the flag of the country that Rambo had been willing to give his life to defend. You know, Rambo, that's what I love about this. He was willing to give his life to something bigger than himself. And that's how you know partly what your purpose is, because you know you're called to do that. He then tells Rambo that he wouldn't like it there in that town because the town's boring. And then he proceeds to escort him to the outskirts of town. And you know the rest of the whole story. And then Rambo gets taken to jail. All these things begin to happen. And he didn't want to have this happen. But his one line is they drew first blood. Well, he was a warrior. That's what he was trained to do. And he was seeing something that was unjust. And what ends up happening by the end of the movie, he's now gone back to the town. And this corrupt policeman, you know, they get into a big gun battle. And they take him, they take him prisoner. They finally surround the place where he's at. And when they take him around, you can remember his, uh, his colonel, he comes in and he's telling, Johnny, don't let it end like this. And in that moment, you know, Rambo, it's, it's gut wrenching because he begins to talk about, you know, how at one point, you know, he had been a part of an elite group, you know, and, and his commander tells him, he says, you know, the colonel says, you know, Johnny, don't let it end this way. He's being reminded that, you know, he'd once been a part of something, you know, special, And that triggers a volatile response from Rambo that's been inside, you know, now for years. And here's how he kind of ends it. He says, back there, I could drive a gunship. I could drive a tank. I was in charge of million-dollar equipment. Back here, I can't even hold a job parking cars. If you remember, he takes the gun and he throws it. The next thing you see is Rambo collapsing onto the floor, sobbing as he remembers. This once elite warrior was now lying on the ground, lost, purposeless. I want to bring this down to a close today because I know how many of you feel purposeless. You feel like you're stuck um, in, a, in a job that, that there's, it's, it's only a paycheck. That's the only thing you're doing is bringing something home. But if you can remember from the, the movie Braveheart, William Wallace's speech, it's one of my favorites. Here's what he says. He says, in dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this to that for just one chance? Just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Now, what was it about that speech that, that moved men that were ready to cut and run, to pick up their weapons and charge the enemy? Purpose. Guys, you have what it takes because you have the God of the universe inside you. So as we move into the next podcast this next week, I want you to be thinking about what are the breadcrumbs that God has been laying down in front of you that you can see His faithfulness and that brings passion into your life? Because guys, more than anything, I want you to become unleashed. We'll see you next episode.